I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at $14.99, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. This is an online recording given current restrictions, but hopefully it isn't too far away from the usual quality. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't but have a couple of quid to spare to do so, please have a look at patreon.com slash when Saturday comes. Harry, for our 21st birthday, what is in the snack platter? Well, well, as you're probably aware, Dan, there's been um, there's been industrial unrest at the Burton factory in Edinburgh. Mm. Um, mm. So wagon wheel production has been halted. Um, but luckily, I have managed to get some lion's jam tea cakes, which are also made by Burton's, possibly at their factory in Birmingham. I'm not sure. So I've got some of those. It's, they... It, you'll be pleased to note that they've got chocolate-flavoured coating, always better than actual chocolate. And on the on the packet, it says, come in, I'll put the kettle on. I don't know who's who's saying that. And also, I've got fantastic, I've got these, I've got individually wrapped, you can hear the rattling, um, Swiss Swiss chocolates, big value Swiss minis, um, which is a collection of bite-sized uh, Swiss chocolate pieces, which have come all the way from Lionel Road, Canvey Island. Uh, just it just it just smacks of sophistication, like the Felius Fog snacks that came from Medemsley Road Concept back in the nineties. On that's the right, what a fantastic advertising campaign that is! Everyone remembers Medemsley Road Concept <laughs> just because of that advert. Is it a nice street? Um, it, uh, it's in concert. <laughs> oh, good answer! <laughs> I leave it there. <laughs> and talking of which or where you've finally been able to visit some northern league football how was the romance of the temperature check well yeah it was a bit, it was a, i think i said last time it was a bit nerve-wracking you know because you have to go and then they take your temperature and so when they mm. point the gun at you you're just fearful you know maybe you shouldn't have maybe you shouldn't have had that espresso before you set off and run up the stairs you know um but they did get in and i've seen i've actually seen three games since the start of the season um, 13 goals for a, a total admission price of £10. <laughs> Talk about value. The best of which actually was it was free, which was in the Northern Alliance Division 1. Holt Whistle Jubilee 4, Hexham 3. 
in rain so torrential that I had a rainproof coat on, but it was a bit short. And then for some reason, at half time, I put my hand in my back pocket, and my, ha- my back pocket was actually filled with rainwater. <laughs> God, you've got gold fever, if nothing else. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Guess I should check for that. Andy, any exciting developments there? Um, no, uh, wildlife update, still seeing the occasional ant, but as I mentioned before, I think these are survivalists, rather, or at least dropouts, rather than members of a, of a thriving ant community. Um, I hope now as they start moving on to whoever it is in one of the flats below me, started drilling around 8, at eight o'clock at night. Oh. Um, I hope that maybe they'll, one day they'll, they'll see their drill bits and maybe their furniture being carried off by a long procession of ants like you used to see in the Tom and Jerry cartoons. Um, <laughs> I'm looking on eBay at the moment for, I have been looking for a WC Albania t-shirt or Albania t-shirt. I used to have one, um, but I think I must, have, I must have thrown it out. I think it must have been disintegrating, get a bit too yellow around the neck. Um, I've got a collection of WC t-shirts carefully archived in a, a large bin bag in the cupboard. Um, we used to have quite a lot of the old ones at the office, which I brought back when we moved out. So I've kept them in case I ever get the chance to go on um, Antiques Roadshow. Maybe the drilling is some kind of renegade dentist. I hope it's not a really big ant <laughs> who's trying to break in to, to avenge his brothers who, who, I, who I say led to a sticky death the other week. I think it was an episode of the Twilight Zone or something, wasn't it? The ant, you know, an ant, the ants learn to use tools. Yeah, the ants develop opposable thumbs. I've watched a few of the Spurs All or Nothing documentaries with its ridiculously serious voice tone and voiceover, which makes you realise how much more enjoyable those 90s documentaries you always watch were. It just adds such a strange air when he's saying things like, Christian Eriksen's knee is in jeopardy for the next game, in the voice of a murder documentary. Absolutely bizarre. (laughs) Great revelation when Jose Mourinho starts as manager. He brings his own stuff to the office and you see him filling all the different drawers with pictures and trophies and various mementos, which I just never, ever imagined imagined a football manager doing and probably being really annoyed if the previous manager has left an apple core in the desk drawer or something (laughs) and best of all in the first couple of episodes in which Mourinho is the manager it keeps showing shots of him kissing some sort of religious icon that he keeps around its neck but you don't ever get to see if it is indeed a cross or something of that nature and I think he's just snacking on one of those edible necklaces that Swizzles used to make and going hmm that one tastes of Parma Violet (laughs) (laughs) and it improves the program massively if you start to imagine that's what he's doing every time (laughs) so it's just a picture of himself yeah it probably is Andy, as this is our 21st podcast, if you could have a key to the door for any football ground in the history of the game and a look around that ground, where would you choose and in which era? Uh, well, I do like a ground built into a mountain or the side of a cliff, you know, hints of, of Tracy Island in Thunderbirds. There's one for the teenagers, as Tony Hancock would say. So Norwich's pre-war ground, the nest, which is built in a disused chalk cliff, looked pretty good from, from photos, I think. Might get a bit of chalk on your hands, I suppose, or maybe be breathing it in, maybe not ideal. <laughs> um, there are, of course, various grounds in southern Europe that are built into mountains or quarries, there's some of which are quite old in Greece, and I think there's one or two in Italy. And there's also Rijeka in Croatia, which has a cliff behind it on one side and the Adriatic on the other side. And amongst more recently built stones, of course, there's also Braga in Portugal, which has a quarry It's built for the Euros, has a quarry at either end. And in pictures of the empty ground I've seen, very often one shopping trolley um, at one end as well. And <laughs> apparently you can move around via, to, in the ground via underground tunnels, possibly in the shopping trolley. So I, th- I think in, in general, yeah, I'd like a bit of topography before kickoff, I think. <laughs> Who does Yes, well, you know. You'd like Dumbarton right next to the Castle Rock. Oh, yes. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, we had a photo feature on that once, yeah. That could be a real huge ambition of yours in the post 
coronavirus world to get all the way up there. Imagine. And the same elongated blind date style question to you, Harry. Well, I think I was thinking that probably because the first World Cup that I remember was 1970, I'm probably going to the 1970 Azteca Stadium in Mexico. But I think it probably is just a huge concrete bowl. But just the name of it, the Azteca, it seems it sort of speaks of a kind of swinging um, Acapulco sort of feel to to me. That's what I imagined. Um, <laughs> I imagine that's what it would be like. Um, so yes, I would. I think I would go there. That's where I. That's that would be my choice. The Azteca in 1970. It'd be better if a game was going on. Obviously, I don't. You didn't give me that option. Otherwise, I might choose differently. I'll save that for another tenuous question that I make up the night before we record. Oh, good. <laughs> don't give away the magic. <laughs> don't shine a light on your process. <laughs> No one wants to see that. <laughs> no one wants to see your process. <laughs> Andy, as ever, I've been enjoying the letters pages of When Saturday Comes, issue 402, which is out now. Which letters in particular caught your eye? Well, there's one we had from uh, Barry Thornton, who, who says, starts off by apologising if we'd covered this in the letters before. We may have done, but not for a while, which is, why did goalkeepers stop wearing caps? He said he was struck by seeing lots of YouTube clips from the 70s and 80s during lockdown of how prevalent cap wearing still was then and um, if it, if the point was to keep the sun out of keepers eyes and sure it's no less of a problem now than it was 30 years ago and perhaps more so because perhaps because of global warming so even allowing for the fact that some countries like spain they tend to pay games in the evenings uh, that even then they, they wouldn't have done that before floodlights were more widespread so it's an odd thing um oh i also wonder which he didn't mention but why did goalkeepers ever wear wool wool jerseys? You know, you know, say, oh, keepers from the sixties and before. Surely there'd be a hindrance, you know, especially when they got wet. It'd be much harder to dive around. But maybe, maybe somebody will send us a letter about that. Another one I liked this month was from John Gledhill, talking about the Debenhams Cup, a very short-lived cup which had created in 1976-77 for the two teams outside the top two divisions of the league who progressed furthest in the FA Cup. It was Chester and Port Vale um, played. Port Vale won the first leg 2-0, Chester won the second leg 4-1, and it was dropped after only one more season. John says, I'd like to think it's because there's no possibility of surpassing the excitement of Chester's epic win in the first final. Well, the next year was actually Bly Spartans against Wrexham because they played each other in the fifth round, and they both qualified for this tournament through having been the, the two furthest low, or in Bly's case, obviously non-league team Wrexham were in the third division at the time. That Bryth-Wrexham game, of course, was famous because Blythe were a goal up at Wrexham going to the final few seconds. Wrexham got a corner, which was cleared, but the linesman flagged that the corner flag had blown over and wasn't in place. So Wrexham retook the corner and scored from the corner. So they drew the game. The replay was at St. James's Park in front of um, 42,000 people. The other thing I should also say, I like, it reminded me also about the other thing, I fact I, I know about Debenhams, which was that in the, the early 70s uh, TV action series, The Persuaders, Roger Moore and Tony Curtis, Roger Moore's in the, the closing credits, Roger Moore's wardrobe is described as being supplied by the total look of Debenhams. <laughs> oh, the glamorous playboy that he was. On goalkeepers in hats, I'm wondering if it's because they've forgotten how to wear caps properly. Because when you see them getting off the team bus, they're usually sort of perched on the crown of the head rather than in the forehead area, which would be useful. So it could just be that they've collectively neglected how to wear such a well, thing. Yeah, well, they, wore them, they wore them back to front, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. But, they, but they did used to wear sort of a, quite a random selection of of caps as well, well they didn't they? they often wore some of the goalkeepers wore just like a kind of flat tweed cap like a man out with whippets that was also there when they tended to wear heavy woolly sweaters as well well they used to wear polo necks as well but you know, often see photos of goalkeepers in a, a big woolen polo neck so maybe they were more vulnerable to the cold in the in olden times 
the goal. Maybe that was also more likely to be post Christmas when they've been given one for Christmas, perhaps. Yeah, something like that. But why not? Pay, why not wear a scarf as well? Or a muffler. And a goalkeeper in your new book, Harry, plug number one, that built a snowman on the goal line. Oh, yes, Harry Sharrett. Yes, the famous uh, madcap goalkeeper from, from Bishop Auckland. Uh, someone's just knocking on my door, fantastically. It's him. It's the ghost of, ghost of Harry. <laughs> God, I hope it's not one of my aunts. <laughs> And Harry, any favourite letters this time? Um, yeah, I enjoyed the letter. There was, I thought it was an excellent letters page. Actually, it's always good, but I thought this was a particularly, a particularly high quality letters page. And I, I enjoyed the one about. Um, there was a letter from John Howlett, which was about the difference between a fan and a supporter. Um, which was that you were only a supporter if you'd seen your team relegated, <laughs> which I thought was really good. And then at the end, he says, "You know, you're a proper football supporter now, not like that Piers Morgan." <laughs> which I which I, which I I enjoyed, and then there was a letter which had been sparked by uh, my column in uh, WSC four hundred, which was about you know people restoring um, football grounds to their original splendour in a kind of middle class mm. way, and um, Andrew Chapel points out that the there is a stand that uh, a Buckfastley Racecourse that's available. Should anyone wish to recreate Torquay's nineteen twenty seven plain more? Which obviously would be a that would be a project, wouldn't it? So it's the sort of thing that would be on grand designs. So yes, I enjoyed that one. Um, and then there were quite a few letters about people who'd had season tickets for their team at every, in every division, including I think someone from Carlisle United who'd had season tickets at every in every division for Carlisle, which is a you know shows great longevity of support. That's from uh, Richard Reardon in Carlisle. So well done. That's a hard paper round, isn't it? It is indeed. Andy, as mentioned, issue 402 is out now. Tell us about some of the contents dripping from its pages. Well, this is our pre-season preview issue where we get supporters of each club, uh, English and Scottish League, apart from MK Dons, uh, to answer a few questions. So 103 different sets of replies. So the new issue is only 40 pages rather than the usual 48 because we've got a 24-page survey. Um, So it's quite a lot of work doing the the, the preview, but it's much easier now by email. I can't imagine i can't really remember perhaps because the, the the memory of it is too traumatic how much of a slog it was to do it all previously because i used to do it by post so you'd write to people they'd reply by post and then we used to do the scottish first division as well as the scottish premier league and though that was in the days when there were quite a lot of zines for scottish lower league clubs too so it was a lot must be a much more drawn out process um so i'd have to phone up sometimes people if i hadn't if, if they hadn't replied and it got these slightly fraught phone calls i remember phoning somebody once and one of their parents answered, and the, and the phone was in the porch, and they're trying to stop the dog getting out at the same time. So it's like they're kind of saying, well, "When Saturday? When is this? Woo woo!" And then they say, "Oh, can you grab the dog? What is it? Saturday coming? Woo woo!" Oh, and that kind of thing. I was just going to say, "Yeah, we're, we're missing, we're missing a set of you know survey replies." Uh, in this issue, a uh, story of Phil King, Villa fullback, who became a hero for scoring a winning penalty against Inter in the UEFA Cup tie, and about how a player can continue to be remembered for one moment in in their career. He had injury problems after that, and moved on to other clubs, and now runs a a pub in Swindon does some media work for their games and he says about the penalty that I was going to hit it down the middle but I gave 
Paliuka the eyes and look to his left. I always thought, I don't, if I was going to be a penalty taker or a, a footballer, I'd always, I think, practice doing the eyes bit as well as practicing the kicks. <laughs> that seems to me that d- does really help. If you can practice looking one way and shooting the other, it'd be quite useful, <laughs> I think. Um, we also got a look at the, fir- the 60th anniversary of the first live match shown on TV, on ITV, which wasn't a success. Um, the league had signed an agreement to show... Um, uh, for 20 games uh, that season, the second half of, of 20 games. The first game, Blackpool v Bolton, it was a, a, a dull 1-0 uh, win. The coverage itself was a bit bizarre because they had cameras behind the goals and one bizarrely behind one corner flag. They didn't have cameras at the uh, uh, either side. Um, the crowd was down by 12,000 on the same fixture the previous year and that seemed to have worried other clubs and, and then they, they pulled out the deal, basically, though. Regional TV and then the BB- ITV and then the BBC did start showing highlights within a few years, but the first live game, of course, wasn't until the 80s. And we also got a post mortem on the Newcastle takeover, we've been, which was officially rejected actually only yesterday uh, by the Football League, and there may now be, I think, be some threats of legal action by the club. We'd I'd had this noted down in our flat plan to do a sort of a, a plan for the, each issue ahead. I had it noted down for five months, Newcastle takeover before. And kept having to move it on to the next issue all the time. Um, but Newcastle do seem to spend a fair bit of money in the transfer window. Though. I think some of this may be the um, deposit they were given by Amanda Stabley, who was involved, of course, in the failed uh, Saudi deal. Um, we've also got an extract from Harry's um, new book, The Father Corner. And um, because of that, Harry's column has a guest this month, uh, which is you, Dan. Yes, indeed. I wrote about the ceremonies that clubs tend to put on when they move from stadiums and thinking back to Ayrson Park's version and a couple of others, such as Manchester City's, which had the spectacle of Kevin Keegan and Arthur Cox looking on at Doves and Badly Drawn Boy, that Brentford, York City and Boston might have got away with it, really. It is a sad thing leaving the ground, but missing the closing ceremony is perhaps not such a bad thing. And as Andy mentioned, Harry, an excerpt from... The Father Corner. There seems to have been a lovely reaction to the book so far, absolutely justifiably. On Twitter, anyhow, perhaps you're getting abuse on the street, though, I don't know. No, no, I, no it's, been, it's been really, really nice. Yeah, so thank you for everyone. I have thanked most people, I think, who've, who've made comments on it. But um, one of the good things, though, is that you, start, you get corrections as well really early on, which is always... <laughs> And someone has pointed out, which I didn't realise, that the publisher sends you the cover of the book and says, this is the cover of the book, we love it and we hope you do too. Um, so you realise, I don't know what would happen if you said, well, actually, I don't. But anyway, so I just accepted the cover. Um, and then someone sent me <laughs> sent me a message saying, your book's about northeast football, why has it got Witten Albion on the front? Um, so, the, so the cover has apparently the ground on the front, although it's all kind of blurred. Mm. Um, it is Witten Albion for some reason that I'm not privy to. And also, um, uh, there's a misspelling of Win Davies' name as well. So I apologise for that too. So yes, so those are the things that you remember. As an, yes, when you've written the book, when you've written the book, all the nice things that people say to you, you forget <laughs> immediately. And then the things that you remember are the fact that you said it was Dundee and it was actually Dundee United. Well, that's another that's another mistake in the book. You see, I remember I remembered that as well. The thing I like about the cover being blurred is you, at first you can't quite spot the ball between two players, and it looks more like they're having a fight, which is probably more apt. Well, well someone said that it looked like the spot the ball. They thought it was a spot the ball competition <laughs> picture. They were prepared to put an X where they thought the ball was. Publishers are always looking for marketing genius, so the comeback of spot the ball could be an excellent marketing tool, couldn't it? But I think they've missed. It could be actually. One. Yeah, they should do that. They should have a spot the ball competition on the cover. Yes, exactly. That would work wouldn't it in the, in the new in the new age that we live in, in the instagram age it would trend it would it would trend i think you're right make sure you never miss an issue of when saturday comes by subscribing today 
Not only will you have the magazine delivered to your door and save on the shop price, but you'll also receive discounts on books and t-shirts, plus get free access to our complete digital archive, which stretches all the way back to issue one in 1986. Go to shop.wsc.co.uk for more information. Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Fisher Athletic FC, Metal Studs, Romeo Zondervan, and it's landed on Club Mergers and Takeovers. Andy, which clubs and stories does that bring to mind for you? Uh, Well, first of all, there's one that thankfully didn't happen, which we wrote about on WC recently, which is Hibs and Hearts making Edinburgh United in, in 1990, which is fairly... Uh, swiftly rebuffed. There's the notorious Thames Valley Royals, Robert Maxwell's idea to merge Oxford and Reading in 1983. Uh, Supposedly going to be playing at a new venue halfway between the two places, which is finally abandoned due to fan protests and the people on the Reading board who'd agreed to it were, were forced out. But it also should be mentioned that the Football League, before the, 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 the plan was um, kicked out, called it bold and imaginative. So, um, <laughs> yes, tells you what, where the Football League were in 1983. Um, there was a Fulham and QPR and Wimbledon Palace attempts to merge in the late 80s, uh, about 1987. Um, uh, Fulham Park Rangers was going to be the ludicrous name of the new club. They were going to play at Loftus Road with Craven Cottage being sold for housing. There had also been an earlier attempt to merge Brentford and QPR in the 60s that would have involved QPR moving to, to Griffin Park. Um, the Fulham QPR uh, thing was the first time, only time, or certainly first time I'd ever been part of a pitch invasion. Actually, there was an, an arranged half-time sit-in at Craven Cottage during a Fulham Walsall game towards the end of the season to, to protest the uh, the attempt to merge, which did get us a uh, rebuffed in the end, um, and led uh, gradually, eventually, actually, to Jimmy Hill uh, taking over Fulham. Fulham did actually have a bad time after that financially, but at least they managed to keep the, the merger at bay. Um, she also mentioned, I think, maybe the only UK merger involving over a long period four different clubs, Leightonston, Ilford, both successful amateur cup teams and Isthmian teams in the past, merged in the early 70s as Leightonston and Ilford. Um, and then they won the Isthmian League under that name in the early 80s, and a, a year later dropped the ampersand, which I don't think should be allowed, so they became Leightonstone slash Ilford. Um, I, I think you should always have to keep your ampersand mm. if you if you've acquired one. Um, they then absorbed another absorbed rather than merged with another traditional non-league club, Walthamstow Avenue. Had one of the great old non-league grounds in London called uh, Green Pond Road, and a great kit as well, very distinctive light blue and dark blue hoops with white shorts. They were still called Leighton Still for that point, then changed to Redbridge Forest, which is part of the name of the two of the London boroughs that the cl- clubs were in. Moved in with Dagenham, played Dagenham for one season, um, and then merged them as Dagenham and Redbridge in 1992, the sort of uh, Frankenstein monster club who's, of course, got into the league since under that name. Uh, another Ilford club has formed uh, since then, actually, and uh, there's now a club called Walthamstow and another one called Redbridge as well. It's a very complicated history of football in that part of London, which probably need a whole series of podcasts to unravel, I think. Um, there's also um, FC Amsterdam, one, a merger of three clubs, in Amsterdam, really partly in effect of Ajax's kind of rise to international prominence uh, in the late 60s. DWS, who were the senior club, had won the league in the mid-60s, but had financial problems shortly after that. Um, they absorbed two other clubs, Blauwit and, here's a pronunciation, Tafalovikers, both of whom had played in the first division before. Um, and the, the original clubs, as often the case in Holland, carried on in the amateur leagues. And they had some success initially. They got, as FC Amsterdam, got to the quarter-finals of the UEFA Cup in 1975, beat Inter 
uh, along the way. Folded in the 80s, and the three clubs have carried on within the regional league system. But it seems strange to me no one's ever attempted to get DWS revived as a second professional club in Amsterdam, which still only has the one professional team compared to three in Rotterdam. It seems odd to me, but maybe I suppose Ajax are just still uh, too dominant, really. Um, takeovers seem to happen, and a type of takeover happens a lot in Europe where a club goes bankrupt, then takes over a smaller local club and then acquires that club's position in the league. And very often the smaller club's name is changed to that the, the senior club. The sort of thing that seems to happen a lot in Italy, home of the, of the pragmatic solution, where um, it, it seems about half the clubs below the top level have gone under and, and, and reformed more than once over the last 30 years. Um, there's also, um, I suppose, a club we've mentioned a few times before, uh, Racing Henk, um, um, formed by a merger of Vorteschei and Winterslag in the 80s. They've gone on to win the Belgian League a few times, four times since then. Um, both teams have done okay in the early 80s. Vorteschei got to the semi-finals of the Cup, Cup Winterslag in their one season in Europe, knocked Arsenal out of the UEFA Cup, but had both had financial problems subsequently. Um, but I think it's a great shame there isn't still a club called Winterslag. I have to say. Well, the funny thing with that name is because because that was actually that that's there's a there was a massive coal mine there, and uh, it's famous yes. for its slag heaps, and so it seems like it's almost a reference to that, the winter slag heaps of of Limburg. They looked out the window after they'd formed the club, the the, the first committee. <laughs> the first what should we call the club? We'll, we'll, like... we'll, we'll name it up the first thing we can see out, out of the window, and unfortunately. <laughs> that's what they ended up with and what does mergers and takeovers from the random topic generator mean for you harry well i think we you know and sort of andy mentioning the the belgian um mergers um some of the some of the clubs end up with very very long names as a result of them famously racing white daring molenbeek you know which which was a sort of amalgamation of clubs but then also um in scotland of course you've got um caledonia fc and inverness thistles merger which produced that i think that is the longest name in british football in vanessa caledonia thistle but i think that they also invited the the other inverness team clack mccudden to be part of the merger too so if they had and clack mccudden had gone along with it presumably they would have been inverness clack mccudden clack mccudden caledonia thistle um, in which case, the person who started to give me an eye chant, you know, that would have gone on the whole, yeah. the whole of a half, wouldn't it? Um, but there's also been various other t- sort of mergers that didn't happen where uh, names were proposed. Uh, there was a time when Manchester City moved to the city of Manchester Stadium, Stockport kind of toyed with the idea of moving into Main Road. And at that point, the, the chairman of Stockport, Brendan Elwood, said, a name change is possible, but I would want to keep some reference to Stockport in the new name. Manstock County, for instance, which sounds like he, he just read Scorcher, doesn't it? I mean, you know, and also there was, the, in I think in 1999, there was a proposal to merge Oldham, Bury, and Rochdale. Rochdale yeah. And they were going to be called Manchester North End, which kind of is a bit like a sort of Ryanair's approach to airports, you know. It's like sort of Brussels, Charlotte. This is Manchester North End. It's not really Manchester. <laughs> you know, so yeah, so I think that's always been a bit of a problem. That's been one of the problems uh, with the, with the mergers is just the naming of the new clubs. It seems to me, Newcastle West End and East End. Was there any friction between the fans? Then sounds like some sort of PhD title from the University of Northumbria. But have any proposals and indeed takeovers been popular with fans down the years? I, I would imagine the Newcastle one probably was. That wasn't given they're, they're pretty successful. Like within a decade, they won about 
what, about three league titles in the early 1900s. So, and I, I, I don't know if either of those other teams had been full-time professional before. Possibly mm. not. No, I, th- I don't think they were. I think they were amateurs. And there, were, there was some sort of talk about the fact that they were, was it, they, there's always some rumour that they were based around various abbeys that the colours that the colours were taken from some sort of Cistercians and mm. I don't know what another Franciscans. Someone who play so monks who wear black and monks who wear white. I don't know someone <laughs> else. Someone I, I don't know which is which. But uh, there was some sort of talk that that was that it was somehow connected with that. Also, it's hard to know, isn't it? Kind of looking back, what people thought. I mean, to, you know, Torquay United mergers of various teams in Torquay. I think latterly. Um, Torquay Town and Babacombe, but that was in about 1921. So when they came into the league in 27, they were actually a, they were actually a sort of a club that was formed out of a merger. But whether fans of Babacombe are still aggrieved by the whole thing, I'm not sure. <laughs> is there a model village in Babacombe? Maybe there's a little part of it is a protest outside the well, town. There's a little Babacombe. Yeah, they've they've left the Babacombe st- Babacombe Park <laughs> is still there. On the question of shirt colours, I was wondering who got to decide what shirts the new club would play in and has it resulted in any horrendous combinations? When you mentioned the possible merger of QPR and Brentford, would that mean stripes and hoops in some kind of mashup, or is that just a description of tartan? It'd be some kind of Bridget Riley Arpard development, I think. <laughs> a good example of, of, of colours merging, of course, is Sampdoria. Um, two clubs, um, San Piero Derense and Andrea Doria. Um, the first one, I'm not going to say the full name again, played in blue and white. And Andrea Doria played in white, red and black. So, of course, they've got that blue shirt with the white, red and black central band. I think Andrea Doria, I think Andrea Doria was an Italian politician. I think there was a, might have been a, an oil tanker named after him that had some horrendous crash. I was going to say, it sounds like an actress from a, from a 1970s American soap opera, doesn't it? It's like Flamingo Road with Andrea Doria. He was a man, um, very <laughs> Italian, because he's entirely comfortable with his sexualities and call yourself Andrea and it's fine. You know. And some fantastic club names lost through mergers, Burnley Wesleyans, Stoke Ramblers. Yes, uh, Burton Swifts, who merged with Burton Wanderers, having both been league clubs to form Burton United, who were in the league in the early 1900s. Burton, I think, the only town to have had four different league clubs. There are also a few non-league clubs early on who had temperance or Methodists in their names who mm. disappeared in some cases in mergers. But maybe they just realised they weren't m- making enough money in the bar after the game. <laughs> it's time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what have you picked this time? Well, I'm going for Ick Bin Ick, Yay Bent Yay, I Am Me, You Are You by Wim van Hannigam and Franz Dirks. Wim van Hannigam, uh, a player, of course, with Holland and final, played in Holland in the World Cup final in 1974. And Franz Dirks, uh, described on the, on the sleeve, actually, as the beatnik referee. Um, very unusual, a record made by a player and a referee. So it's a sort of plea for mutual understanding, a bit like Ebony and Ivory by Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. <laughs> the player, I think, is holding a right-hand guitar and his left hand upside down. Do you think 
as Paul McCartney used to odd yeah, it, it, it's, it's, on purpose. It, it's, it's almost like a, a, he knew what was going to happen later with Paul McCartney, that Paul McCartney was going to make a similar sort of record, so he's letting people know <laughs> some time in advance that he, he could see into the future. Um, I'm going for the Vancouver Whitecaps this time. Um, it's from 1983, and I'm, I'm rather hoping, I'm not, I can't be certain, but I hope that Peter Beardsley's singing on it because it was the time <laughs> when Peter Beardsley yes. was playing for Vancouver Whitecaps. And of course, he was signed from Vancouver Whitecaps. Uh, that's where Newcastle United signed him from. And he was told that he was sort of signed, and he was very excited, and he wanted to let his parents know. Um, but they didn't have a phone, so he sent them a postcard and then flew back to Newcastle the next day, arrived home, realised that the postcard wouldn't have, you know, wouldn't have got there before him, walked into his mum and dad's house, and they greeted him by saying, that's fantastic that you've signed for Newcastle. And Peter Beardsley said, what, has the postcard arrived already? And they said, no, it was in the paper. <laughs> um, so anyway, so yes, so, so this is, I think, so I hope he's singing on this. It's basically the England 1982 World Cup song. Um, just appropriated by Vancouver Whitecaps. For the charitable arm of McDonald's, and they kindly put their logo all over the sleeve, which was good of them. It was that was nice, wasn't it? Yes, it's a nice touch because McDonald's needed every help they could get. choice this time is Cardiff City FC by Cardiff City Superstars, a early 90s record I just picked because it sounds so much like a few of the Britpop bands such as Kanicki and others in its <clears throat> splendour. <laughs> Thank you. 
let's have another heave of the random topic generator. Here we go. Witten Albion, interesting physiotherapists, Vince Bartram, and it's landed on international retirements and refusals. Another long title just just fits in there. Harry, what on earth does that bring to mind? Um, it's always that thing, isn't it? It became a bit of a, a sort of fashion. I feel in the sort of t- in the in the start of this century that players announced their retirements from international football, which I always felt. Well, why was it necessary? And some people who announced their retirement, you couldn't even remember them playing international football. That was the <laughs> other extraordinary thing. And it seemed like a sort of, I don't know, it just seemed a strange, a bit of a bid for attention, really, I thought. Although over the years, quite a few players have, have um, retired prematurely. I mean, Gert Muller um, retired from playing for West Germany when he was 28, which, you know, if he, I suppose he was probably at his peak when he retired. But he would have certainly got another European Championships in and maybe another World Cup. But, I mean, part of the reason that Muller, um, you know, the classic retirement reason was that he was offended by the German FA because at the 1974 World Cup winners' banquet, um, the German FA wouldn't let the players bring their wives. And that was reportedly why... why uh, Muller retired and never played for Germany again. There uh, have been quite a few examples of that kind of thing. Um Paul Breitner, as, as you would imagine, the, uh, the notoriously feisty um, Afro-sporting fullback. Maoist. Um, feisty Maoist. <laughs> feisty Maoist. Uh, he, he actually he retired from international football uh, just around the same time as Gert Muller when he was only 22 in 1975, partly because he wanted to go off and play for Real Madrid. I don't know why that would have stopped him playing international football. He did return. He, he was, he was uh, persuaded to come back in 1977, um, and did so, but then refused to go to the Argentina World Cup uh, for political reasons, um, and then did come back again in for the in for the in 1981. So he retired. So he retired several times, uh, as did Dwight York. Of course, he he retired first in 2001 after a row with Ian Porterfield, who was the coach of Trinidad and Tobago. Um, he came back in 2006 and played in the World Cup. Retired after that. Um, then came back again in 2008 um, because he was persuaded to play in a one-off game in the notorious friendly against England um, and came back at the personal invitation of Jack Warner, uh, lovely old Jack Warner. And then he retired again, Dwight York, and then he came back for the uh, 2010 World Cup, um, but only managed to play a few games because then he, he, his contract at Sunderland ended. He couldn't find another club, and so he just retired from football forever. Um, and I think, although he might have gone to play in Australia, I'm not sure. But anyway, so that was so him. And then, of course, another p- player who retired from international football very young was, I mentioned him before on this programme, was Bernd Schuster. Um, and rather than go through his, go through his whole rigmarole of him retiring, um, but he was, a, I didn't realise that Bernd Schuster was a committed Christian scientist who believes that sickness is the result of mistaken beliefs and that prayers and chants are better than medicine. But anyway, he... Um, he was such a great player that they, the German FA constantly were trying to persuade him to come back, but he had a particular hatred of Karl-Heinz Rummenigge. And um, when Franz Beckenbauer was a Germany manager, he tried to persuade him to come back, and it seems that Schuster basically said that he wouldn't play in a German team unless, if Rummenigge was in it. And Rummenigge's response to all this criticism was, he said, 
Um, Bernd Schuster has the intelligence of an East Frisian tea bag. Well, that's very specific, isn't it? It's, it's very specific. I don't know what, what the East Frisian tea bag had done to offend Karl Heinz Rummenigge, but anyway, that was that was his summary. That was his summary of the uh, of the of the prematurely internationally retired Bernd Schuster. There is something brilliant when someone announces their comeback from international retirement when you didn't know they'd retired in the first place. Just excellent. And for you, Andy. Well, there's Chris Sutton, now, of course, a plain-speaking pundit with firmly held views on just about everything. But he won't shut up with his opinions now. But anyway, um, he pretty much killed off his international career at the age of 24 by declining to be picked for an England B squad by Glenn Hoddle ahead of the 98 World Cup, having previously played once for the senior team. Jimmy Greaves' international career came to an end. He was contacted about about being in the squad for a friendly against France in 1969, but apparently said he'd go if he was in the team but not to be a squad member and, and got dropped, although admittedly his, kind of his career was winding down a bit by then. Um, several Dutch players, inevitably, who declined for various reasons to play in the national team in the 70s. Probably from Van Hannigan, who's probably already mentioned about the 78 World Cup. Uh, goalkeeper Jan van Beveren and midfielder Willy van der Keilen, both from PSV, who'd fallen out with Cruyff earlier on in the 70s and got excluded. Van Beveren, generally seen as the best Dutch goalkeeper of that era, and van der Keilen is still the all-time record goal scorer from the Dutch First Division, but neither of them played as much for Holland as they probably should have done. And there was a Jerry Muir and Arnold Muir's older brother who got 10 or so caps and also, for some reason, declined to be selected for the 74 club, which he, he certainly would have been in. Um, there's a French player called Serge Chiesa, who's not very well known. He's, he's a famous player in France, though not, wasn't very well known internationally. He was like the star player with Lyon in the 70s compared to Michel Platini. He got 12 caps for France, first when he was 19. But he refused to be picked again when he's only 23 for reasons that were never clear. And he probably would have been in a couple of World Cup squads had, had he not. There's um, Jorge Carrascoza, who's captain of Argentina in the build-up to the 78 World Cup. But he was then withdrew from the squad at the time. It was said that it's because his wife was due to give birth during the tournament and didn't want to be away from his family. Because um, the Argentinian players were in training camps for a long time ahead of the finals. But later on, it's revealed that he, he was actually protesting against the military regime, which he he didn't say or couldn't say at the time. The military regime, the fact that he felt that they'd be looking to capitalise on the tournament, they didn't, he didn't want to be part of it. There's also, of course, George Best was given an opportunity to be, to be in Northern Ireland's World Cup squad in 82. He was told by Billy Bingham, the manager, that if he could play regularly with uh, a league club in the season building up to the tournament, that, that he'd get included in the squad. Um, I think I th- think he was linked with Middlesbrough at the time, but nothing happened. might have been when Malcolm Allison was Middlesbrough manager. Possibly. That sounds likely. <laughs> That would have gone well. Yeah. <laughs> yes. What yes, could possibly indeed. go wrong? Big, big Mal and George Best. It, it's sort of nice to think he might have, you know, got got a couple of you know subs appearances in the World Cup, even if he's only you know, strolling around for ten minutes at the end of games. But it, alas, it wasn't to be. There's also the thing of of players perhaps opting too soon to to play for a certain country. I mean. Some of the England players who played for Ireland in the 80s, like John Aldridge and Mark Lawrence, would have been England regulars if they'd waited a bit before opting for Ireland. And Lawrence was only 19 and with Preston when he first played for Ireland. And Aldridge was at Oxford when he first played. He didn't move to Liverpool till he was 28. And so perhaps wouldn't have had a long international career, but he certainly would have had, you'd think, sort of three or four years as, as an England regular. It's interesting when players qualify for a big, large footballing nation and a small, more average one, and how they wait until they make that decision before plumping for the smaller nation and have to declare things like, I've always felt my Macedonian heritage so strongly. Yeah, there are lots of naturalised Brazilians playing for national teams all around. You're quite a few in Eastern Europe as well. That's probably second-level players at home. You can't imagine them thinking, oh, yeah, 
you're playing for a second division team in Rio and you think, God, what I'd really like to do is to one day represent Moldova. <laughs> There's also the strange case, one other thing on that, of uh, Willy Lippens, a player who's famous in Germany, he's a striker, played for Rottweiss Essen, one of the top scorers in the Bundesliga in the 60s, early 70s. He was born in Germany with a Dutch father. Um, and he was nicknamed the Duck because he had a funny running style. And his father, who'd been a steel worker, had moved to Germany in the 30s, had been in prison during the war for refusing to join the Wehrmacht. And he'd always told his son he didn't want him to play for Germany. And Lippens got one call-up for Holland, 1971, scored, albeit it was a game against Luxembourg. But he said he was made to feel unwelcome because he didn't speak fluent Dutch and he never played for Holland again. He now plays for Germany in, in veterans' games. Though he wasn't technically a German international at the time. Yeah, that's it. That Michael, I think Mike, the, the 2012 England team, Roy Hodgson in the European Championship, I'm pretty sure Michael Carrick was offered a place in that and turned it down. But also Michael Richards, who turned down the chance to play for England because he would prefer to play for Great Britain in the Olympics, saying something along the lines of, it's not just England, you see, it's Great Britain. Oh, we should also mention, I've just suddenly remembered, uh, Mario Bonini, uh, Juventus midfielder in the 80s, who was from San Marino, who was a good San Marino player, who this is before San Marino had an international team, and he mm. turned down opportunities to play for Italy, which he would have done, because he was in the Juventus team with Platin and Boniek, uh, until San Marino could have a national team. And he did ev- eventually, towards the end of his career, play a few games for San Marino. Um, but that was, I think he may become a national coach later as well. But that that's pretty dedicated, I think. An end to an international career, a spectacular end to an international career, was of course Roy Keane's in South Korea. And I've often wondered if he meant to say in his rant, "Stick it up, you bollocks," because that seems physiologically odd, doesn't it? I, I've never heard that before. Did he mean arse? Did he get his rant wrong, which must have really annoyed him and probably still does? Unless he meant to sort of that. Like- Lift. I don't want to get too anatomical here, but uh, lifting up the scrotum and placing the item <laughs> underneath it, possibly. <laughs> then Mick McCarthy could have said, "I don't, but I don't have a testicular aperture, Roy." <laughs> he probably thought of it later that day, but Roy had gone by then. It always comes to you too late. That's what yeah. Mick would be saying. Curses. You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter. Hey, what do you think you're playing at? Come here. Please give us a few stars and a good review on the Apple Podcast app or elsewhere, for instance, in graffiti on a bridge over the M23. OK, I'll leave it up to you and we'll settle up later. Will you be needing anything else, love? No, with this lot and a bit of luck, we'll be fine.